Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, or wherever you happen to be. Uh, good day and good night. How are you guys? Uh, for those of you who joined me this morning for <laughs> Riddles in the Dark, uh, you, you're uh, coming back for a long day. Um, uh, but welcome. Um, uh, good to see. Uh, good to see some familiar people. Indeed, some some folks from this morning. Um, uh, as well as some new people. Excellent. Excellent. Um, very good. So just scanning through the list of who's here with us today. Very good. Um, and I will say for um, those of you who are... Uh, for those of you who are uh, uh, joining us for the first time, please do be aware of the little questions box at the bottom of your control panel. I encourage you to enter comments and questions there, um, which I'll be able to get in real time when you do. So uh, I'll be able to see... Uh, to see you. And I would like to say first a special hello to Ms. Binkley's class uh, up in Alaska. Ms. Binkley's class, who is fortunate to have one of the coolest teachers in the state, if not in the entire nation. Uh, I, I, am, I am a big fan of hers, and I'm glad you guys could join us for a little bit today. We are talking about the two towers. And in our last class, when we were talking about chapters one through three, we were focusing especially on choices and decision making. Uh, and uh, looking at some of the things that Aragorn does there at the beginning of class, uh, at, at the beginning of the book, and the, the struggles he has, Aragorn is really hard on himself. Um, you know, he gets really down on himself for, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, choosing wrong, and everything he does goes amiss, and uh, and all that stuff. Um, but uh, we're going to. I, I wanted to come back. We were looking at some of the, the the principles behind the choices that they make and what is sort of the central decision that Aragorn ends up making there in that opening sequence in those first two chapters, um, which is, does he go after Frodo or does he go after Merry and Pippin? And we were looking a little bit at how deeply counterintuitive in one way that choice is. And I think it's interesting because as we go forward, I want to I carry on that, dis- that, that conversation just a little bit more because um, I didn't quite get a chance to finish it last time. And to take that through looking at his encounter with Eomir uh, especially because I think we begin to see a bit of a pattern beginning to form, which I think is a very interesting one. After that, we're going to move on to the primary topic of today's class, uh, which is mythic moments in Tolkien. Uh, you know, this is this word mythic, uh, and myth is something is a word that's very important in talking about Tolkien that people use a lot. Um, and I think these two chapters that are on our schedule for today, chapters four and five of Book Three of the Two Towers, um, contain two of the elements in the Lord of the Rings, which are I think most powerfully mythic. Uh, that is the return of Gandalf from the dead, and the story of the Ents and the Entwives. And, uh, you know, between those two things, you've got one of those who's a, you know, a a character and an incident which is, you know, absolutely central to the entire story and Gandalf, and then you've got the Ents and the Entwives, and the Ents are, you know, they, they play a significant role, but you know they're 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 relatively minor um, in as far as the plot of the story goes, and the relationship between the Entwives and the Ents uh, plays no direct role whatsoever in the story. But yet that story of the Ents and the Entwives is uh, something that is uh, that has been really really powerful for many people, um, and is something that I think is is uh, very much. Um, very much present in a lot of people's minds as they are sort of thinking about the Lord of the Rings and, and kind of processing their own experience. It's something that really um, that's, that's, that's really deeply affecting to a lot of people. So what I want to do today, 
without hopefully hopefully without kind of uh, you know dissecting it too much is to think a little bit about why how how is it that Tolkien does this how does he accomplish um, the kind of mythic effect that he's that his writing so often has um, what are how does it how does it work the actual making of myth that he does um, so anyway that's what I want to be uh, focusing on today um, and I'm going to do them in that order I'm going to talk about Gandalf first and Treebeard second even though that's not how they uh, they come up in the book um, but first we're going to return uh, to um, we're going to return to uh, 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 the decision making uh, thing for a little bit first now again as I was saying just to recap a very brief bit the choice that Aragorn makes, and Legolas and Gimli leave it up to him, is whether he's going to go after Frodo or whether he's going to follow Merry and Pippin. And he says that his heart speaks clearly at last. For him, finally, the choice is a no-brainer, um, even though it doesn't seem like it should be a no-brainer. Um, if you look at it from the bigger point of view... See, it sort of depends on kind of what kinds of principles you apply to this, right? If you're thinking of it in terms of larger strategy, right? Look at the big picture, Aragorn. You've got the ring bearer. The entire fate of the world relies upon the success of his quest. Merry and Pippin are awesome, but their lives are comparatively insignificant, right? You leave Merry and Pippin to die. I mean, th- look, that's sad, but look, you know, they're, 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 they're out of the ring picture right now, right? They are irrelevant to the main... Keep your eyes on the prize, Aragorn. Follow Frodo. Help him. He's the one who needs help. Let everything else go, right? That would seem practical, right? That might even seem wise. Difficult, but wise, right? Possibly. For Aragorn, it's a no-brainer in the other direction. Um, and uh, also, we talked a little bit about, you know, there's, there's even a second theoretical principle, th- theoretical duty uh, in place. Well, not even theoretical. It is a principle, and it is a duty in place. Aragorn set out on this journey uh, to help Frodo as much as he could, but that was not his destination. Remember, when Elrond explains about the companions in the party at the beginning, when they're leaving uh, Rivendell back in the Fellowship of the Ring, he says that Aragorn is returning with Boromir to Minas Tirith. Aragorn feels that the, the, the message of the dream that Boromir brought with him to Rivendell was a summons, that he's been summoned to come to Minas Tirith. Now is the time for the heir of Elendil to reveal himself and to return to war and to help to liberate Minas Tirith and to, 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 to help Minas Tirith and her struggles. This is, this is you know, a, a, a fate that is placed upon him, and uh, this is his duty, like capital D duty. This is a big deal. What's more, even more pointedly now... You know, as he's lying there dying, Boromir lays it upon him to go to Minas Tirith. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. Now, so now he's got to represent Boromir as well. Now, you know, to fulfill the dying request of his friend that has laid upon him to go to Minas Tirith, he's got a double duty now to go to Minas Tirith and to help Minas Tirith. And what does he do? Turn his back on Minas Tirith and go in the other direction. Why? To hunt down this huge group of orcs that has captured two of his companions who, again, in the big picture, don't have any significant role to play, right? Apart from the fact that they're his companions and that they are in trouble. So again, in several ways, this seems counterintuitive, but to him, it's very, very clear. Now, what's interesting is that you'll notice Aemir is put into a very similar position by Aragorn when he meets Aragorn. You'll remember Aemir has this decision that he's got to make, too. 
he's faced by Aragorn, who you know tells him, "Look, we're pursuing these orcs," and Amir's like, "We already killed the orcs." He said, "No, they 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 took two of my friends," and Amir's like, "Look, there's a law here, right? I he's a marshal." He is uh, he is he is one of the people who is supposed to be enforcing the king's laws. It is it is laid upon him uh, to, to to do. He he is he he is to quote Haldir. He is not the master of the law, and so does not have the power to set it aside. Right. So here's Amir saying, "Look, our law is that any strangers in the land have to be brought to the king, and the king has to give them leave in order to travel around in our land." and the law is more strictly applied now in these days of doubt. I mean, there's war brewing. We're being attacked. You know, I have to enforce the law. You have to come with me. Aragorn says, uh, you know, no one in the Rittermark would have would have tried to restrain anybody on such a quest as mine under any other circumstances. You people are men of honor. You understand somebody who is going to rescue their, their, their comrades. Um, you recognize that that's a, a good and a, a, a righteous thing for us to be doing. You're not going to let the law stand in the way of doing that, right? And Amir has to make a choice, and he says, loath am I to start a battle of 100 against 3, right? Um, and so he makes his choice, too. What I would point out is that there's a parallel there. Um, uh, there, uh, there's a parallel between Aragorn's and Amir's situations. Both of them have what would seem to be an overriding duty to do one thing, right? Um, that if they refuse to do that thing, it seems on some level like they're shirking, right? That they're turning away from their duty for the sake of something smaller, less important, more... I, personal, I was going to say that's not quite the right word, um, but uh, but in both cases, in the end, it seems clear to them, right? And when Amir puts it in those terms, it seems to make it really clear, right? Lothamai to begin a battle of a, of a hundred against three, that is obviously not the right thing to do here, right? I mean, he's torn. Um, obviously, setting on these three people. 100 against 3, is not the righteous and honorable thing to do. But breaking the law is also wrong. So what do you do? I, I, I want to add as a side note. Tolkien, of course, was a scholar of uh, Anglo-Saxon and uh, Old Norse literature. He loved uh, these old heroic legends. Uh, divided loyalties and uh, sort of tough quandaries that people are caught in the middle of this is the bread and butter of those particular kinds of legends. Very frequently in Anglo-Saxon tradition, in Old Norse tradition, you find heroes who are caught in this tight place between two things, right? Like, uh, you know, you've, you've got somebody who's fighting a battle, and he's trying to defend his king, and then he sees that his brother or his father is confronting him in the battle lines on the other side. What does he do, right? Does he fight and possibly kill his own brother, or does he... Uh, remove himself from the battle and thereby betray his king, right? Those kinds of, um, those kinds of dilemmas are, uh, they, they sort of, they, they love these in, uh, in, in old Germanic uh, heroic poetry. Tolkien does that kind of thing a lot too, but you'll notice that the quandaries that Eomir and uh, Aragorn find themselves in are of a different kind, right? It's not 
gosh, do I support my father or my brother? This is terrible, and there's really no good way out of that situation. That is often the case in these old heroic legends. There is no, there is no positive outcome that's really available to a person who's stuck in that kind of a situation. Um, in the end, they have to do something horrible. Like, even doing nothing is doing something horrible. Um, and tragedy almost always comes of it. Here, there's a dilemma. But the dilemma is, again, not of that same kind. It's not a dilemma between two equal and competing loyalties. Rather, it's between two different kinds of principles, if you see what I mean by that. That is, there's the principle of the duty to one's city. Even in Aragorn's sense, sort of more vaguely, the duty to his calling to, to, to help uh, Minas Tirith and to go to its aid. Um, her aid, sorry, we usually personify Minas Tirith when we talk about her in this way. Um, and uh, and of course, there's there's the duty uh, to to help to help Frodo, especially since you know Gandalf uh, falls in in Moria, and now Aragorn is sort of responsible. Um, and then on the other hand is the duty, uh, the principle of not just standing by and letting your friends die if you if it is even possible that you could help them. And for Aragorn, it's clear that latter duty, though it seems smaller, more local, more personal, um, that one trumps the other one. Um, and it seems to be primarily about a means versus ends question, right? Um, if you, if the means to your good end, that is the end of going to save Minas Tirith, if in order to do that, you have to do an atrocity, by the way, not even just permit an atrocity, right? Um, I'm going to turn my back on Mar- Mary and Pippin knowing that I'm leaving them to be tortured and killed. That's fine. But hey, you know, it's for the greater good. I got to do that. No, if you do that, you've left the path, right? For Aragorn, it's clear you don't do that. For Aemir too, it's clear, right? The law is perfectly clear. He knows what his duty is as marshal. And yet, he also sees... At the end of the day, I can't do it. So he's, not only am I going to let you go, I'm going to lend you horses, right? Because clearly, setting on you and attacking you 100 to, to 100 to 3 is obviously wrong. And to do that in order to achieve the higher goal of, of maintaining the laws of the land is obviously wrong. Um, and what's more, I can see that what you're doing, that the choice that you're making, is a good one and a noble one. And I'm going to help you with that by lending you horses and trusting that you're going to that you're going to bring them back. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Erica asks. And so, looking at a couple of questions and comments you guys have made, um, Erica asks: Is book Aragorn as reluctant to go to Minas Tirith as movie Aragorn? Not at all. Uh, mo- uh, book Aragorn is longing to go to Minas Tirith. Um, this is one of the things that Frodo recognizes. Whenever, when you know, when the the company is in debate uh, and doubt, they're at Parthgallon at the very end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Which way should they go? Should they turn to Mordor at Rauros, or should they go with Boromir towards Minas Tirith? Um, he sees Aragorn knows that he should go, and he he's not just going to abandon Frodo. Um, Aragorn is not capable of simply saying, "Okay, Frodo, uh, see ya. I'm going this way. Have fun." He's not going to be able to let him go, but his heart longs to go to Minas Tirith. Frodo knows this, and it's clearly true of Aragorn. Um, one of the 
passages I was hoping that we could get to in class last time, we didn't get to it, um, is Aragorn's little spontaneous poem that he emits when he sees Gondor in the distance. As they're going, as they're starting their pursuit of the orcs, he sees mountains which are in Gondor, off on the horizon. And it's his first glimpse of Gondor since he started his... His trip here has been there before, of course, in his life. But, uh, but you know, on this trip, when he's now the sword has been reforged, he's really you know the when Strider sets out from Rivendell this last time, he's traveled you know very very far many times in his life. Um, so in some ways this is old hat for him, right? But in some ways this is a brand new trip out for him. This is in a sense the very first time that Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Elendil, has, come, has returned to Gondor, even though he's been there a lot, if you see what I mean by that. Anyway, he sees it in the distance, and he spontaneously uh, erupts into this poem uh, about Gondor. Um, and and he, so he clearly does long for it. Um, so, Erica, the, the reluctance, the, the, the whole idea of um, Aragorn, you know, not wanting, being uncomfortable with being king, or kind of turning away from that, that's a total movie creation. In fact, I, re- I remember that as being one of the things that threw me most the first time I saw The Fellowship of the Ring. You know, when Aragorn says, but I turned from that path long ago, and I was like, what are we talking about? What is happening? That was the first of my several, I feel like I'm having an out-of-body experience kind of moments when watching the Peter Jackson films for the first time. Um, okay, good. So let's see... Um, Diego says, does his decision have to do with the fact that Frodo left the party willingly, whereas Merry and Pippin are taken by orcs against their will? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot to do with that. Um, and, you know, that Merry and Pippin, they both need him, right? Frodo needs him. Merry and Pippin need him, right? But but there's a big difference between, I should go and support Frodo, and Merry and Pippin are about to die, right? There's a, there's, there's a big difference in the urgency there. But moreover, he says... Uh, he takes in a the way that he talks about this. He takes Merry and Pippin's capture as a sign, right? The fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. He says, right? It, he he. See, it's not just a question of like, gosh, I should do these two things, but I'm going to prioritize them. That's not how he talks, right? He he ta- he interprets this as a kind of message, right? I now see where my path leads. My path is leading me that way after Merry and Pippin, not that way after Frodo. Um, the fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. I, I, I understand now. I have a clear task that I'm supposed to do. It seems like it's taking me in the opposite direction of both of the other things that I should be doing, but that'll probably work out or something. Anyway, that's what I should be doing, and off he goes. Right? And of course we find that it does work out, as these things very often work out uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, so, so yeah, Diego, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, Yeah, Daniel uh, points out an interesting point that um, there is another factor with Aemir, and that's true, Daniel, that when Aragorn reveals himself as the heir of Elendil, um, which he does, he he whips out like every title he has, right? Uh, when uh, when he reveals himself to Aemir and, and you know identifies himself, um, when he does that, Daniel is uh, suggesting he also is sort of suggesting that he has a higher authority even than Theoden. Right. Um, yes, this is the mark of Rohan, and uh, and Theoden is the king. But if Aragorn is the heir of Elendil, then Theoden is actually his 
vassal, sort of, though the uh, relationship between the Rohirrim and the and and uh, the the people of Gondor is not quite so clear cut as that. Um, uh, but but anyway, it's sort of close to that. So Daniel, I agree with that. Um, I'm not sure how it's not clear to me how much that weighs into Aemir's thinking. I don't see. And, and point out, point, point, point things out to me if I've forgotten them, Daniel. But I, I can't remember a place where Amir speaks as if he's doing it, as if that's what's in his mind, like that his obedience to Aragorn is trumping his obedience to the king. Um, but I agree, Daniel, that it's interesting to think about, um, and that at least it, it sort of shows. At the very least, it gives very significant credence to what Aragorn is saying. When Aragorn is saying, look, I'm on a... I keep using the word righteous today. Uh, and the way that I mean that is it, just, like, it is right. It's one of the things that I think is so crucial about this, and it's the difference that I was trying to point to before about the difference between the kind of dilemmas that characters experience in the first few chapters of this book and the kind of dilemmas that they so often experience in Germanic heroic legend. Um, in Germanic her- heroic legend, it's not that there's a clear principle that like one thing to do would be just and the other would be unjust, that one would be righteous and the other unrighteous. Turning your back and saying, I'm going to sacrifice Mary and Pippin for the greater good, that's just wrong, right? Um, I, and that, that seems to be... Aragorn seems to feel clearly that that would be a wrong thing to do. He is also suggesting to Aemir, turning us aside, trying to keep us from pursuing our friends who have been captured and are in need, would be wrong for you to do. That's what he means when he says nobody in Rowan would have done that before, right? Um, so that's why I think that's why I keep reaching for that word because there is this sense of objective right and wrong of these things. And when you come up, when you come upon a choice. Where even if it's counterintuitive, even if it takes you away from what seems like it should be your ultimate goal, um, if there's, you know, it, it, again, it gets into the means and the ends, right? Um, if you have to overlook something or do something, you know, that either do something that's 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 evil, or you know, turn a blind eye to something that's evil in order to reach your greater goal, you're not going to get there. Um, and that seems so. That seems to be the appeal that's being made here, and I think that that's really, um, um, I think that that's an interesting phenomenon, and one that I think becomes a bit of a trend uh, as we go along. Um, look at the way that it comes in in a, in, in some ways, in sort of a larger sense too. Um, here is uh, here is Aragorn uh, and Aemir speaking, not, not about Aemir's own choice here. Um, but about kind of, you know, Aragorn and what he's doing. Tell me, Lord, he says, what brings you here? And what was the meaning of the dark words? Long has Boromir, son of Denethor, been gone seeking an answer, and the horse that we lent him came back riderless. What doom do you bring out of the north? The doom of choice, said Aragorn. You may say this to Theoden, son of Thengel. Open war lies before him, with Sauron or against him. None may live now as they have lived, and few shall keep what they call their own. But of these great matters we will speak later. If chance allows, I will come myself to the king. Now I am in great need, and I ask for help, or at least for tidings. You heard that we are pursuing an orc host that carried off our friends. What can you tell us? 
There are a couple things about this passage. I won't uh, sit on it for too long, but there are a couple things about this passage that I think are really interesting. One is, you see how the same principle is being applied in a bigger sense here, right? Theoden is going to have a decision to make, too. Um, what's he going to do? How's he going to act? Or is he going to act, right? Uh, and we can see, in some ways, there's going to be a similar kind of principle at work um, for Theoden. Um, is he going to do what seems to be the right thing to do, even if it might perhaps not be the wisest thing to do, understood from some kind of an external circumstance. Um, the the policy that Theoden has pursued to this point has been, in one sense, prudent, that is, trying to remain neutral, not getting involved, right? Amir has already said at the beginning, um, you know, the first thing Aragorn asks him, are you friend or foe um, of the Dark Lord in Mordor? And he says... Um, we are not friends with him, but neither are we at open war with him yet. And Aragorn is saying, look, y'all ain't going to be able to sit on that fence for very much longer, right? Sitting on that fence seems like a prudent thing to do. Why should we get involved, right? But, uh, you know, there are are some other principles involved. But the other thing that I think is fascinating about this passage uh, is the segue. Um, Again, it really emphasizes the choice that Aragorn has made. Um, Open war lies before him, with Sauron or against him. None may live now as they have lived, and few shall keep what they call their own. Huge things are coming. Um, Now I am in great need. Meanwhile, I've got a really important thing to attend to. Um, Two of our friends were carried off. What can you tell us about that? Right. Um, all of these other things, these greater these these policies and stratagems and alliances and all of these things, which arguably are more important uh, again than Mary. Everything's more important than Mary and Pippin, right? Um, then you know, but no, all of that stuff to one side. First, let's focus on what's important. That is saving our friends in the here and now. We can see him um, going in that direction again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Hey, exactly. I was going to bring that up later. Not much later. Almost immediately. In fact, hang on a second, Kay, and I'll bring it up now and use your comment as a transition into my next subject. Very good. Hang on, so Kay, I'm coming right back to that. Um, uh, okay, excellent. Let's see. Um, Good. Oh yeah, Don, commenting on the book and movie Aragorn thing, Don says uh, the difference between book Aragorn and movie Aragorn is the difference between recognizing one's fate and welcoming it, and denying almost that one has a fate. This is understandable given the times and attitudes of writing and filming. Uh, Yes, uh, the Lord of the Rings books are perfectly uh, willing to accept um, the fact that there is a fate and that one should embrace it. Um, The film's Less so. Uh, I agree, Don. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting, Tom. Tom has a, a really cool point about Boromir. He says, The death of Boromir, and more importantly, the redemptive sacrifice of Boromir, sets a lot of transformations in motion. Aragorn is the most obvious, but Pippin is also changed by it. He begins to stop being a fool of a took, and starts, starts, mind you, growing into something more. You could probably also make a case for Frodo and Sam, though they are now off stage. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think... It would be possible, Tom, I think, to exaggerate that a little bit. That is, it's not... I don't think that all comes back to Boromir. In fact, with Pippin in particular, I would also um, be 
I would also suggest that their suffering at the hands of the orcs um, is what is, is a, a thing that really changes him. Um, you know, chapter three, when we get Pippin's perspective for most of the chapter, all of the chapter, actually, um, uh, we, um, we see him basically second-guessing himself. Oh, I, I, really, I really should have paid better attention. I really should have looked at those maps, right? I really... I, I've, golly, I've not been taking this seriously at all. Um, and now I've got nobody else to rely on. Now I'm, I'm not just a piece of luggage anymore. Now, now I'm kind of on my own. I'm now the actor in this. I'm not just the passenger. Um, that seems... And, 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 and they're suffering. The fact that, you know, the suffering that they're enduring seems to have this effect on them. The endurance of suffering seems to have often a positive impact on characters in Tolkien. Um, but Tom, I, I also don't want to don't undervalue the point that you've made. I think it's certainly true, and it's certainly reflected in Pippin when we see him talking to Denethor. Um, and he does seem to have been uh, changed um, in, uh, uh, by the death of Boromir in that way. Um, yeah. Caleb, that's a wonderful point. uh, Caleb says, Aragorn's ethic that good and evil have not changed since yesteryear is a statement against relativism. Yes, it certainly is. But he also says that it's a man's part to discern them. We know what good and evil are, but need wisdom to apply them in our situations. Exactly, Caleb, because it's not like... um, it's not, I mean, again, going back to those decisions, it's not like it's that black and white, right? I mean, it's not like you've got, like, either you know, save somebody's life on the one hand or, you know, stab a baby on the other hand. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like performing an act which is obviously wicked or performing an act which is obviously good. Um, it does. It is a man's part to discern them, and sometimes they screw it up, right? Sometimes they make the wrong choice, um, whether it be big or whether it be little. So, um, so yeah, Caleb, that's, uh, thanks for, thanks for uh, reminding us of that passage. Um, good and Rachel at the sa- in the same minute, uh, Rachel was making a very similar point. Um, very good, quoting the same passage. So Rachel, I give you equal credit for uh, for 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 pointing that out. Uh, Caleb hit return a few seconds before you did. Very good, um, excellent. Um, good, good. Um, okay, well now I'm going to come back to Kay's uh, point because it's time to transition here. Um, uh, Kay says, Aragorn and company's decision not to shoot the potential Saruman figure is motivated by the same inner ethic of means before ends. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Gimli is speaking the pragmatist's part, right? Okay. Um, we're in a dangerous place here in Fangorn, right? We know that Saruman is uh, uh, nearby. Um, we've been told that he sometimes travels around looking like that, True, we don't know who that dude is, um, and shooting first and asking questions later might seem a little dodgy. But you know what? Um, better safe than sorry, right? Better to ask forgiveness than permission. Let's just shoot him, okay? Um, uh, th- that's that's what Gimli says. And Legolas pauses and won't do it, and he's like, "What's wrong with you? Shoot, shoot!" And and Aragorn says, "No, we, Gimli, we can't do that." We can't shoot an old man at unawares and unchallenged. That would be wrong. Um, and uh, um, that's... Um, that's okay, I do think. That's exactly the same kind of thing. And of course, 
When you find characters in Tolkien make decisions that are guided by principles like that, they almost always turn out to be the right decisions. Um, no, they don't shoot the guy, and of course it turns out that it's Gandalf, who tells them that they couldn't have hurt him anyway. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, so so yeah, I, I think that, that there. But there, I think we can see that same sort of principle. Um, to do something which is clearly morally dodgy, um, even if you have a justification for it, or even if it seems like it's uh, it's it's uh, you know a means to a higher end, is clearly not um, is clearly not a, a good idea. Is clearly not going to turn out well in the long run. Whereas doing the right thing, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to turn out well usually does turn out well in the long run. Not necessarily for the person who does it, but in the bigger picture. Um, that seems to be a principle which is very frequently true in Tolkien in general, and I think is something that we can see happening um, through the two towers. Now, um, in that scene, of course, that is the scene, you know, Kay, I was excited you talking about that, because it's exactly the scene I wanted to go to next, which is the revelation um, of Gandalf. And here I want to shift uh, from this uh, theme of decision-making uh, to this other theme of, of, of myth and the making of myth. And I want to pause for a second to make sure that we're all on the same page. I know that many of you have heard me talk about myth uh, before, some of you many times. Um, I see a couple uh, uh, frequent Mythgard students uh, among us here today who have heard me talk about this a lot of times, but but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, the use of that word in modern uh, English usage is very different from what that word tended to mean uh, to, uh, to Tolkien and also to C.S. Lewis. This is one of the things that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien really agreed on and really were both very interested in. Um, and one of the, uh, yeah, it's anyway, it's clearly one of the concepts that at least they came to have in common, though it seems that um, uh, Lewis really owed his understanding, his thinking about this topic uh, to Tolkien. But, um, so, this, so when, when modern people say that's a myth, they tend to mean one of two things. Um, either, at best, they mean that's an outdated fictional idea that people used to believe in, but now we know is not true. Or, in the worst case, and in the more common case, they mean that's something which is simply false. That's that's a misunderstanding, an urban legend, that's that's just something which, uh, it, it's it's not exactly, the, the word is not exactly a synonym of the word lie, um, but it's just, it's certainly an un- a factually untrue statement. Um, when you when you have disproven something, you have exposed it as being merely a myth, right? Uh, exactly as Ed uh, points out. Exactly as the word is used in the title of the show, MythBusters, right? We're going to we're going to disprove all of these things, which turn out when you look at them only to be myths, right? Okay. Um, now, um, what? How is it that Tolkien is using this word? What do we mean by myth when we talk about Tolkien? It's obviously not that. Um, and I want to read you br- very briefly, too. I didn't haven't put them up on PowerPoints. So they're both short. Um, but I wanted to uh, just kind of read them um, to you. One is from On Fairy Stories. Um, Tolkien using the word uh, and using it, um, using it in quotation marks. Um, 
this is in the epilogue of On Fairy Stories, and he's talking about the Gospels. Um, in which he believes, uh, and so there's not a question of him using the word mythic in the sense of uh, a belief that is that some people had but people don't anymore, or something which is untrue. Um, he says, The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical, in their perfect self-contained significance. Mythical in their, in their perfect self-contained significance. Um, something that is mythic is something which has significance. And again, perfect self-contained significance is what he's sort of, what he's pointing to here in, in describing um, uh, stories from the Gospels as mythical in this sense. Um, the other passage that I wanted to read you is from uh, C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, An Experiment in Criticism, uh, which is a wonderful book, uh, which I'm a big fan of. And I read this part because here he uh, gives an actual definition of myth uh, in ways that Tolkien never actually did. He's talking about myth, and he says, There is, then, a particular kind of story which has a value in itself, a value independent of its embodiment in any literary work. Um, and I, I find Lewis's definition uh, a really fascinating one. You know, that there are some stories, there are some books that affect you powerfully, that touch people really deeply because they're so beautifully written. You know, they, they ascend up, they, you know, they, they, they move us very deeply because the art has succeeded so very well. But, Lewis points out, there are other stories which move us almost equally deeply, no matter how they're told, no matter how incompetently they're told. Even if you read them in a, a little short, uh, clumsy and pedestrian synopsis, the story itself is still intrinsically powerful and moving. And that's how he defines myth, that, that, that stories that have that kind of power, that have that kind of impact on people, that is independent of the artistry with which they're conveyed. And uh, the example that he gives, by the way, um, in that chapter uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to illustrate myth is the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. And I think he's right about that. For my money, I certainly agree with that. Um, that no matter how you recount the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, it's heartrending. Um, and it doesn't matter um, whether or not it's told in beautiful poetry or in moving prose. Um, uh, but anyway, it's it's so it's it's myth is a story that touches people on some really deep level, a story which resonates with the human spirit in a really powerful way, um, which again is not really necessarily connected to the story to 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 the telling of the story itself. Um, Tolkien achieves myth in this way, I think, in many places. In fact, in that very chapter of An Experiment in Criticism, uh, C.S. Lewis alludes to uh, Tolkien um, and gives him as an example of, uh, of mythic moments in modern literature. The two elements, by the way, the two story elements from The Lord of the Rings that C.S. Lewis points to as being particularly exemplary of myth are Lothlorien, he just says the one word, Lothlorien, and the Ents the story of the Ents and the Entwives. Um, so we're going to get to the Ents and the Entwives. Um, but here, as I say, these chapters, four and five, um, to me, contain 
two different, very powerfully mythic elements in Tolkien's story. Um, and I think that they're also interesting to talk about together because they're very different kinds, as I was implying before. Um, the, uh, you've got one myth which is appealing very directly um, to powerful mythic ideas um, that are powerful mythic ideas in the, you know, in other mythic and mythological stories um, uh, of various kinds. And that is, here I'm thinking of the resurrection and return of Gandalf. And then you have this other, much more sort of peculiar, much more idiosyncratic myth, uh, which is the myth of the Ents and the Entwives. So, let's start with Gandalf. Now, my question here as I said, the initial question that I want to do is not just to try to understand these myths as myths, which you know I think, of course, we should also be thinking about, but I want to look at how, how Tolkien does this. If you had to point to it, if you had to show somebody an example of Tolkien, Tolkien's story being mythic, what do you point to? How do you show it? How does he do it? Um, and again, not just trying to anatomize that in, in, in a kind of a cold uh, uh, and calculating way, but to try to understand it. Um, and looking at... So look, for instance, at this one moment. This is... Uh, Gandalf has just returned. And here's Aragorn steps up to him. He rose and looked long at Gandalf. The others gazed at them, that is, Legos and Gimli, gazed at them in silence as they stood there facing one another. The grey figure of the man, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was tall and stern as stone, his hand upon the hilt of his sword. He looked as if some king out of the mists of the sea had stepped upon the shores of lesser men. Before him stooped the old figure, white, shining now as if with some light kindled within, bent, laden with years, but holding a power beyond the strength of kings." Now, I would argue that this is a mythic moment. Uh, this is a moment where we are getting an appeal to sort of mythic concepts, which is quite direct, I would say. What do you notice here? What does Tolkien convey? What does he tap into here in his description of Aragorn and Gandalf facing each other? Um, I'd love to hear your observations about this passage. What do you notice? What strikes you about this? We get the descriptions of them, right? We pause, and there are a couple places in this passage where he pauses for these descriptions, which... It seems an odd place to stop and give us a physical description of Gandalf and, and, and Aragorn, doesn't it? Um, uh, but... Yet again, but he does it, and again he does it in more than one place in this in this in this instance. Why? What is the impact of that? Don says it has something to do with the rhythm of the prose. I agree with that, Don. It's one thing that Tolkien does. There is, I would call this a uh, a modulation in Tolkien's prose. You know, like when a piece of music modulates into a different key. Tolkien does that thing in his prose fairly frequently, um, where he's going along in his normal narrative style, and then he modulates into a different register. Um, uh, you know, we'll see this again, um, well, we'll see this lots of times. You know, one of the, one of the 
passages which always really jumps out at me, um, and it's not until the return of the king, so I should probably even talk about it. But um, but anyway, I'm thinking of this scene when a- when Eowyn comes out to ask to go along with Aragorn to the paths of the dead, and you know, and th- and boy does he modulate in that uh, passage. You know, we we get the narrator speaking and saying things like. Um, and she looked as one who likes not that which is said, right? I mean, it's it's not how he normally talks, right? And it's not in the mouths of any of the characters. It's the narrator speaking, but speaking in this in this different mode. Um, and uh, so, Don, I agree. The prose does sound different. Um, uh, though his diction isn't changed. That is his word choice. Sometimes Tolkien will modulate um, his, you know, sort of the tone and style of his language by changing his diction, by suddenly using more, more archaic language, um, uh, such as the passage that I was just talking about with Eowyn and Aragorn. He does modulate into, and uses different diction there. That's not the case here, though. Um, he doesn't do it with diction. He's not using any odd words. He's not using even really um, any kind of archaic grammatical structures here either. Um, so it's not that kind of a modulation. But I agree, Don, it does sound different, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kay says, they seem like figures in a portrait, types or symbols. The man-king, the mysterious old wise man. They are borrowing the power of all the other people in the soup pot that have filled those roles. Referring to the cauldron of story. Uh, Kay is from On Fairy Stories. Um, yeah. Uh, the gray figure of the man, Aragorn, son of Arathorn. As if we've never been introduced to him before. Or as if there's some, uh, some like, he's the only man present, right? Which one? Aragorn, son of Arathorn. His full name, in case we're confused. Which Aragorn we're talking about. Was tall and stern as stone, his hand upon the hilt of his sword. So, his sternness, his height, his posture, standing with his hand on the hilt of his sword. And then we get a simile. Right? We've already had another simile, stern as stone. And now we get, he looked as if some king out of the mists of the sea had stepped upon the shores of lesser men. Um, so you're right, Kay. We get th- that is certainly a mythic kind of an, kind of idea. We're being asked to now look at Aragorn and see something else than the Strider we've seen before. Remember this happened before. Remember uh, the first time this... Well, okay, it's not the first time this happens. This has happened on a couple of occasions. The first time this happens is in Rivendell, right? When... Um, Frodo sees Aragorn comes in and he's 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 cleaned up, right? He's not in his Strider the Ranger gear anymore, and he's standing with Arwen and and he's like, whoa, okay, um, Dunedain. Now I get it, right? Uh, doesn't look like Strider now. Um, another time, of course, a very famous time is uh, in the Argonoth, right? When they turn around and Strider's not there in the back of the boat. In his place, there's Aragorn, son of Arathorn, right? Um, and he just sort of emerges. Um, in his his kingliness sort of comes out, and this is another one, right? Um, we get this sort of juxtaposition, juxtaposition of the character we've come to, the character of Strider that we've come to know and that we've we've been following, and this archetypal idea, um, this idea of the king, right? Um, the majesty and authority of an ancient king of old who has stepped upon the shores of lesser men. Um, 
king who has come out of the mists of the sea, that sense of alienness about him, and yet of, of and that, and, and this is very unpopular with a lot of modern readers, of intrinsic superiority, right? He isn't, the other men are indeed lesser than he is. He is not just a democratic leader, right? He is not Will Woodford the mayor. Um, he is one of, this, one of the kings of old. Um, and we see that also coming out uh, in the Argonaut. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Ray was saying a very similar thing there about, uh, about Gandalf. Um, it establishes the mythic framework with Gandalf, man, uh, as gray, while Gandalf the Maiar, once gray as well, but now white, has transcended the mortal to something more. Yeah, we do get this with Gandalf, a juxtaposition, right? Before him stooped the old figure. White, shining now as if so, with, with some light kindled within, bent, laden with years, but holding a power beyond the strength of kings. You see how carefully balanced the two elements of Gandalf's character are there? Right? The old figure, bent, laden with years. And white, shining now as if some light kindled within him, holding a power beyond the strength of kings. And those two things are woven together, and he goes back and forth between them to insist upon our maintaining both of those things. Um, And the effect of that, again, it's that juxtaposition, that putting next to each other of these two concepts. Uh, Gandalf, bent, laden with years. The old guy that we've known and we've seen ever since The Hobbit, right, and we're very familiar with, um, and we can remember sort of funny stories about. Um, We remember even, you know, Frodo in his kind of affectionate and slightly anxious assessment of Gandalf when he sees him again after nine years back in, uh, you know, back in chapter two. Um, of the Fellowship of the Ring and how he looks more worn, right? You know, he says he, he looks the same as ever, but he doesn't mean it, um, right? You know, Gandalf looks like he's aging a little bit. He's, 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 he's worn with care. Well, that Gandalf is still here, right? But yet also, we see through him now to this other thing, um, this higher thing again, which is juxtaposed on top of that, um, this radiant light and power Notice also, and I don't mean this as a criticism, the vagueness of these statements. Um, I probably shouldn't use the word vague because most people have no positive associations (laughs) with the term vague, especially as applied in a work of literature, right? Um, uh, But I think this is a crucial element of Tolkien's evocative myth-making in his writing, is that he doesn't spell things out too far. He will give us an image. In what way does he look as if some king out of the mists of the sea had stepped upon the shores of lesser men? What is it about him that makes him look like a misty king out of the sea? We don't know. His height, his sternness of look, his hand on the hilt of his sword, those are the only details we're given. Presumably there's more to it than that. Um, There's something about him that makes him look as if this were true. But we're not told what it is. That is left to our own imagination. He gives us the concept and then allows us to connect this character that we have been picturing, that we have been 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 traveling with, to connect it with this concept. Holding a power beyond the strength of kings. What, what power? Uh, what can he do? We don't know, right? We're never told. Um, Gandalf is a wizard. You know, this description of Gandalf the wizard is at the opposite extreme from the 
role-playing game wizard theory, right? That is from, uh, you know, a, a, the kind of story that wants to articulate the powers of magic and wizardry uh, to make it sound like, you know, first edition Dungeons and Dragons or something, you know, where he's got to wake up every morning and memorize his spells and make sure he has all of his material components ready to hand. Um, that's at the opposite extreme of magic uh, and the way that Gandalf's power and strength is being described here. He holds a power beyond the strength of kings. That's all we're told. What does that mean? What does that look like? Again, that's for um, that's for our um, that's for us to sort of imagine. Um, he he just he connects it with these broad ideas, brings them brings those ideas into contact with these characters that we're familiar with, and then lets it be. And that, I think, Tolkien has a great gift for not saying too much. Um, you know, sometimes people you know, will complain like Tolkien's very verbose. Um, I think his great strength is in the elusiveness of what he's saying. Um, anyway, uh, so there have been a bunch of comments, which I'm not going to be able to get to all of. Um, yeah, yeah. Carissa points out that um, um, this seems to be Tolkien almost appealing in his language to a different art form. This is like a painting, right? Um, and I, I agree, Carissa. I, I do think, actually, that Tolkien did have that kind of pictorial imagination. There's a lot of evidence for that, especially, of course, in his own paintings, in his own illustration. We know he was a painter. Um, and that, I think, is not... A, he's not, you know his painting and his writing are not just two things that he did. Um, uh, he, the two things are, are very much connected, and there were many times that he had these kinds of pictures in his head, often they're landscapes, very often they're landscapes. You know, he has a picture in his head of what the Misty Mountains look like, and so he paints a picture of the view from the Eagle's Eyrie um, in one of his Hobbit illustrations, for instance because he wants to try to capture what that scene, you know, that picture that he has in his head of what that scene looks like. Um, here, he's not doing it in... Um, he's not doing it with paint, right? But he is also sort of trying to capture um, visually, but also conceptually, right? And also not visually. Again, in, in, in the fact that we're pausing for a, a visual description, we get this kind of tableau, which I agree Carissa does sound like, um, a painting description, and yet again, as I said, we get comparatively few details. Um, and Carissa, actually, you know, how I would, um, what I would say further to emphasize this, imagine trying to paint this scene. It would be hard. Could you imagine painting this scene in a way in which it didn't look hokey? You know, Gandalf shining you know, shining now as if with some light kindled within. That's tough. That's tough. Um, it, I, I can't imagine a painted version of this scene that would look awesome. I think it would look kind of questionable. Um, so, anyway, I think that there's a lot of... Um, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of... Uh, uh, ways in which this moment is I guess, both pictorial and, and in a sense almost almost 
a pictorial. Um, yeah, good. Um, oh, so many good comments that I, I wish I could have time to talk about all of them, but I know I'm not going to have time to talk about all of them. Um, yes, yes. Um, Sorry, I just I I, I don't want to miss too much here, but um, uh, but I am sort of sifting through some of your comments. Um, Caleb was saying there are strong echoes of the description uh, of Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. I agree, Caleb. I often think of that passage too. Um, I sort of it's like um, the appearance of Jesus in chapter one of Revelation meets. Arthurian knights in Sir Thomas Mallory, um, always encountering encountering one another and never recognizing one another, um, and sort of the revelation of uh, uh, that it was actually Lancelot in disguise all along. There's an element of that there too, I think, and it's not just mystical. Um, uh, there's uh, there 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 are also sort of more, sort of lower human elements also, um, but. Um, but anyway, let's look at sort of the big mythic concept. That's just sort of a, a one little moment of mythic description. But actually sort of stepping back from this, the other thing I would say is just to note that we don't... The fact that he pauses to do this kind of thing, um, not frequently and not all the time, we don't have to live with this Aragorn and this Gandalf constantly. If we did, um, the story would get very much different. But we don't. We have Gandalf and we have Strider uh, for most of the time, but we're not allowed to forget about these elements, right? <clears throat> and they get just kind of sprinkled back in. Well, what about uh, Gandalf's actual, you know, uh, big moment, his resurrection here? be interested to hear your observations on this passage, too. <clears throat> there, there upon Calebdil was a lonely window in the snow, and before it lay a narrow space, a dizzy eyrie above the mists of the world. The sun shone fiercely there, but all below was wrapped in cloud. Out he sprang, and even as I came behind, he burst into new flame. There was none to see, or perhaps in after ages, songs would still be sung of the Battle of the Peak. Suddenly Gandalf laughed. But what would they say in song? Those that looked up from afar thought that the mountain was crowned with storm. Thunder they heard, and lightning, they said, smote upon Calebdil, and leaped back broken into tongues of fire. Is not that enough? A great smoke rose about us, vapor and steam, ice fell like rain. I threw down my enemy, and he fell from the high place and broke the mountainside, where he smote it in his ruin. Then darkness took me, and I strayed out of thought and time, and I wandered far on roads that I will not tell. Naked I was sent back, for a brief time, until my task is done, and naked I lay upon the mountain top. The tower behind was crumbled into dust, the window gone, the ruined stair was choked and burned and broke, with burned and broken stone. I was alone, forgotten, without escape, upon the hard horn of the world. There I lay, staring upward, while the stars wheeled over, and each day was as long as a life-age of the earth." Faint to my ears came the gathered rumors of all, rumor of all lands, the springing and the dying, the song and the weeping, 
and the slow everlasting groan of overburdened stone. And so at the last Gwaihir the Windlord found me again, and he took me up and bore me away. Yeah. Yes, of course, as Tom points out, um, this Balrog plummets like the wingless creature that he is, not once but twice, of course. Um, <laughs> but yes, very good. Um, yeah. Yana says, I like how uh, it sounds like how Sam talks, how the story he's in might become a song. However, Gandalf is not as humble. Of course, he has the right to be. Yes, though he does laugh at himself, right? Uh, he breaks the tone there. Um, there was none to see, or perhaps in after ages songs would still be sung of the Battle of the Peak. And then he laughs at himself. But what would they say in song, right? Um, and he's not just being humble. Of course, what he goes on to say, the reason they won't sing about this is that, you know, it's almost like, you know, mere mortals could barely even understand. Nobody would have been able to see, right? If they, you know, it would have just looked like a cloud in a storm, right? They, they wouldn't have gotten what it was, Um Notice that there is an almost mythological moment, right? There is a storm on the hillside and lightning striking. Um, and so, you know, we say, you know, it is Thor, right? Um, Thor is angry. Um, you know, Thor is at war this evening. Um, I get there is an element of that, and almost a mythological element that Gandalf sort of attributes to uh, his fight with the Balrog. Um, which I agree, Yana is less humble uh, than Sam, and and Sam's thinking about his his uh, relationship with the songs and stories that people will tell thereafter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, and uh, and Yana does say that he he does he makes it sound like a, a legendary tale that can be told in ages to come. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kay, I agree. The setting reflects it, right? Kay points out the mountaintop is quite literally celestial. It's above the earth, a great stage far above the ordinary world. Mortals looking up from the ground would not even have been able to see or understand what was going on there um, because it was so far, it was, it was up above the clouds that it was happening, right? Um, uh, and even, of course, the way that that story begins way down at the roots, you know, way down below where the deepest, below the deepest delvings of the dwarves, uh, where the world is gnawed by nameless things. Um, and, uh, and it goes from there all the way up to the, to the ceiling. Gandalf and the Balrog and the conflict between them is both lower and higher. It's, it's, it's completely um, outside the range of, of, of normal human undertakings, and that seems to be signaled to us relatively clearly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, Jeremy says, uh, you know, the, 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 the imagery and the description of slaying the Balrog, just that, that the elemental force of it, fire and ice and lightning, uh, is really interesting. Again, yeah, it makes it sound like, almost like a natural phenomenon, or not exactly. Going back to Thor, you know, for instance, one of the things that, that Tolkien says about that, um, Tolkien was very resistant to the modern tendency to be patronizing towards mythologies. Um, you know, that the modern tendency is to say, those people who were talking about, you know, Thor battling the giants or whatever when there was a thunderstorm, 
those ignorant savages, right? They didn't understand meteorology. Had they understood meteorology, they wouldn't have made up stupid stories about Thor, right? Um, and now that we do understand about meteorologies, now we can we can look back and uh, and sort of snigger condescendingly at the people who didn't. That's like the modern point of view on these things. Um, and Tolkien was highly resistant to that point of view. Um, the mythic understanding um, is not simply, again, to use that other classic uh, usage of the word myth in modern in modern English, it's not just factually untrue, right? Uh, we're going to do a myth-busting expose and prove that Thor isn't actually there. Um, no, I, I don't think so. Again, that's not that's not the way that that's not the way that Tolkien talks about these things. That's not the way that he understood myth as working. Um, it, a myth does not have to be literally true. You know, the the Thor and Poseidon and Venus don't have to actually exist in bodily form in order for the myths about them to be, in a sense, true. Um, and we see here, I think, that exactly that kind of a myth. And in a sense, we're seeing what's behind it, right? You know, we see, you know, we're talking to one of the actors of of, of the actual mythic drama there. Uh, you know, the, this elemental conflict. Uh, between light and darkness, uh, you know, between, well, not between um, fire and ice, but between one kind of fire and another, as Gandalf points out on the bridge of Khazad Doom. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I, the way that he appeals to that, I think, is really, uh, is really, is really interesting here. Um, um, and Daniel points to the very, um, very indirect, very metaphorical language that Gandalf uses here. He, just as we don't actually get much in the way of physical description, like in what way did Aragorn resemble, um, you know, a king stepping out of the mists of the sea? Um, so here, Gandalf reaches for openly metaphorical, even in a sense, openly mythic language. To describe stuff. I wandered far on roads that I will not tell, is the example that Daniel is pointing to. Roads? Walked? Wandered? Metaphorically, right? Um, he wasn't actually wandering. He was long on a mountaintop. Not actually roads, right? And he, But he says he's, he's not going to tell us about them. Not only is he not going to tell us about those roads, he's not even going to speak of them literally. He's only going to speak of them metaphorically, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and then, you know... One of my favorite moments is that second-to-last sentence there. Faint to my ears came the gathered rumor of all lands, the springing and the dying, the song and the weeping, and the slow, everlasting groan of overburdened stone. What is Gandalf in touch with when he's sent back? The life of the earth. The cycle of life, the springing, and the, this is the gathered rumor of all lands. What's going on in all lands everywhere on the earth? Springing and dying. Things dying and things being born um, in a continual cycle. The song and the weeping. Joy and sorrow. Those things also 
happening everywhere, right? This is this is this is this is like the pulse of life on earth and the slow everlasting groan of overburdened stone. Which for my money is the most ev- evocative phrase in this entire passage. The slow everlasting groan of overburdened stone. Um really interesting. Um this is what Gandalf is placed back in touch with. It's a uh, it's very very big picture stuff when he is lying there naked and re-entering the world. Um, naked, I was sent back by whom? For a brief time, how long until my task? What is it? Is done? What will that look like? He says he answers none of those questions here. Right? Um, can we? explain it? Does Tolkien explain it at various other points? Yes, we can. But, I don't want to get caught up in that. Um, And I think that that's an important thing to do sometimes. Sometimes in reading Tolkien, we can be so eager to press on and say, okay, wait, no, can we fit it into the system? Can we explain what's really going on behind that? That we can overlook, or that we can miss the experience of not understanding those things, right? Um, this is actually one benefit that I will grant. I'm always a, I'm always in favor of reading the Silmarillion before the Lord of the Rings, but this is the one benefit I will grant to reading the Lord of the Rings before the Silmarillion. Uh, and that is, in some ways, it's almost more powerful not to know. Um, we're not told where he was sent back from, whom he was sent by, or what exactly his task is. Um, but... Still, those statements, naked I was sent back for a brief time until my task is done, are still in, we still get those ideas. Gandalf has a task. He has been sent. There is some other power, there is some higher power that has sent Gandalf uh, for a purpose, this purpose that he has. And also the fact that the repetition of the word naked, I think, is important. Naked I was sent back, and naked I lay upon the mountaintop. Gandalf is exposed. He's been sent back in power, but he's also been sent back vulnerable, right? Uh, He says, no weapons you have could hurt me, but being incarnated, being sent back into the world, being put into flesh again, um, after what is apparently, though again he's not spoken of this in literal terms, his death, is, um, this is I think an important thing, It's, it's, it's a kind of rebirth for him, but it shows, he is, he is vulnerable. He is exposed here on the hard horn of the world. Um, anyway, um, if we have any hope of getting to Treebeard, I should uh, move on. One last thing I wanted to touch on before we leave Gandalf. They all gazed at him. His hair was white as snow in the sunshine, and gleaming white was his robe. The eyes under his deep brows were bright, piercing as the rays of the sun. Power was in his hand. Between wonder, joy, and fear, they stood and found no words to say. At last Aragorn stirred. Gandalf, he said, beyond all hope you return to us in our need. What veil was over my sight? Gandalf! Gimli said nothing, but sank to his knees, shading his eyes. Gandalf, the old man repeated, as if recalling from old memory a long disused word. Yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf. He stepped down from the rock, picking up his grey cloak 
and picking up his grey cloak, wrapped it about him. It seemed as if the sun had been shining, but now was hid in cloud again. Yes, you may still call me Gandalf, he said, and the, vo and the voice was the voice of their old friend and guide. Um, this is one of the fascinating touches. Um, we don't just get... Gandalf is back! You thought he was dead, but he's not! Or, Gandalf died, but now he's back, and I'm not going to explain it. Um, this is one of the things that signals... You know, sometimes people say... Um, and in fact, I think somebody here was asking, uh, you know, do I think that the return of Gandalf is just a kind of narrative cheat? Um, you know, that, like, we, we get, uh, you know, some people are like, oh, yeah, okay, well, Gandalf dies. We get the noble sacrifice of Gandalf, but then it doesn't stick, does it? Right? No, we just go, we're just going to resurrect him and bring him, you know, trot Gandalf right back in. Um, you know, that some people will speak as if, um, as if this is a merely cowardly, uh, thing on Tolkien's part, right? That he, you know, that he, he couldn't bear to just let go of Gandalf, right? You know, Tolkien needed a little bit of more of George R. R. Martin's fortitude towards killing off his characters, right? Um, uh, so, okay. So, no, I don't think so. And the thing, the reason that this never feels that way to me is the signals that we get that this is not just a way around difficulties in the story or something like that. This element, this is this mythic element of Gandalf's return, um, it, it has for me that mythic power. It points to some something, this is not just, and hey, Gandalf's back again, it was like he was never gone. We get a clear signal of that in this moment. Gandalf, yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf, right? Um, yeah, you can still call me Gandalf. I kind of am the same guy. Um, but there's that pause. Wait, he, he doesn't remember his name? Right, um, you probably reckon I couldn't resist uh, my little subtitle there—the uh, reference of uh, to uh, what Aragorn says to Butterbur about people shouting his name at him all day. But um, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, so, you know, Gandalf doesn't remember his own name. It's a it's an odd moment. It's a funny little moment from a purely narrative standpoint, right? I mean, it's like why, why wouldn't Gandalf remember his own name? But I think it has a profound impact on how you know. Again, if we're if we're sort of if we're reading it sensitively, it has a profound impact on how we receive this moment. It's a clear indication. Um, understand something has happened there. There is a there is something big involved in this uh, in this moment. Um, you know that really to me sort of points towards this this myth of uh, death and resurrection um, that is re uh, really crucial. I think um, in the entire shape of the story, um, and plays a, 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 plays a sort of a, a very broad role. Like you know, Tom, thinking back to what you were saying about the role of the sacrifice of Boromir and how the sacrifice of Boromir sort of works outward and impacts the characters, but also I think colors the way that we look at some things. I think that Gandalf's resurrection plays a similar kind of role. Um, but I do want to get to Treebeard. We're describing Treebeard at the beginning, and we, we get a much more detailed physical description of him because it's needed uh, as to what exactly he's like. But then, of course, in the middle of our description of Treebeard, after Merry and Pippin meet him, um, you know, we get the description of you know how many toes he has and what his hide is like and how tall he is and all that stuff. Um, but then we get a part of then we get the description of his eyes, 
and Tolkien draws special attention to the description of his eyes by a simple narrative technique, interrupting the narrator's description of Treebeard with a a, a second-person account of a description of Treebeard, right? We get the words of Pippin as he is theoretically later on attempting to describe Treebeard, right? So now we, we put this description into Pippin's mind as he is trying to capture not just what Treebeard looked like, but the experience of meeting Treebeard uh, and seeing what he looked like, and especially seeing his eyes. One felt as if there was an enormous well behind them, filled up with ages of memory and long, slow, steady thinking, but their surface was sparkling with the present, like the sun, like sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree or on the ripples of a very deep lake. I don't know, but it felt as if something that grew in the ground, asleep, you might say, or just feeling itself as something between root-tip and leaf-tip, between deep earth and sky, had suddenly waked up, and was considering you with the same slow care that it had given to its own inside affairs for endless years. Now, tell me, what do we learn about um, Treebeard from this description of his eyes? What do we learn? It's not, obviously, mere factual description, right? Um, we get a little bit about the physical description of his eyes, right? Dark with, like, green sparkles <laughs> or something. It's a little bit hard to picture in some ways, if you just try to picture it. Um, uh, but what, uh, what do we get? What do we learn? What do we learn? Um, yeah, Chris, Chris says the, uh, the, the, we learn of great age, Chris says. Um, Carissa agrees that we have, they have seen the changing of ages. It's that, the patience, the, the, the enormous well of memory and long, slow, steady thinking. Um, yeah, yeah. Is, there's that, the passage of time, Right? It's that difference in perspective that Treebeard has. One one line I was reflecting on as I was uh, rereading this pass, I was just re- rereading this chapter again today, and um, one line that I was really reflecting on um, that I hadn't in a while is when Treebeard says the sort of the, the famous line about how uh, he's not he's he's not really on anybody's side because nobody is exactly on his side, um, and uh, I think that that's. Um, sometimes misunderstood, or I think even I've kind of misunderstood that sometimes. That is, he seems to... Some people will quote that as if Treebeard is saying, I'm kind of neutral, right? Um, uh, I'm not exactly... Don't count on me as an ally. um, uh, And I'm I'm not going to be the ally of, of, of many people for the very good reason that I'm looking after my own interests and nobody else is really looking after my own interests. Um, uh, so I'm not really on your side. What that seems to reflect is that Treebeard and Treebeard's whole experience transcends sides. When the hobbits ask him that question, what side are you on? It's a clumsy question. It's a clumsy way to ask the question, right? What they're asking him is, are, are you a good guy or a bad guy, Right? Um, are you evil or are you good? Are you, um, but that's what they mean to ask. But by saying whose side are you on, 
they put that question in the context of the local politics, right? Um, that is to say, you know, the the comparatively small scale, regional, and temporary affair that is Sauron and his presence in Middle Earth, right? Um, to Merry and Pippin, um, you know, you, you, th- you think back to the Shire in the first few chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring, and you know the dark. Remember that experience of Frodo hearing for the first time that Sauron, the Dark Lord from ancient legend, um, is focusing on the Shire, and has heard his own name, Baggins, and is looking for him. And there's that holy cow, like that big, huge, legendary figure is focused on me, right? And so Merry and Pippin are still caught up in this, you know, very Hobbit-like idea of we're small little people who are caught up in this really huge thing, which is the conflict and the war with Sauron, the war with the, you know, the good guys on the one side, the elves and the men of Gondor and stuff like that, and the, and the Numenorians and Sauron on the other hand, and now we hobbits are caught up in this big thing, you know, so so which side are you on? Are you, are, are, are you you know, you know little players in this, are, are, are you Treebeard a little player in this big story too? What's Treebeard's perspective? Treebeard's perspective, totally different from that Shire perspective, right? Treebeard's perspective is sides, the signs keep changing. You know, I mean, here I am. I've barely gotten used to one thing, and a new thing creeps up. Even the elves are temporary compared to him. And you think back to the history of the elves. And the first day, this is a guy who has sat there in in his forest and watched Beleriand come and go. You know, the kingdom of, of, of Thingol and Melian, Wax and Wayne, uh, who has seen... Um, you know the 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 you know we we've we've passed through already the elven land of Holland and and have heard the legends of of you know the 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 the, the Noldor kingdom of Eregion and and Celebrimbor and the forging of the rings that was such a blip in history from Treebeard's point of view um so what sides you know to say what side are you on is to suggest that the lines that are currently drawn are much more stable and permanent than they are. Treebeard's perspective is not just longer. It's so much longer that it's qualitatively different, right? And he looks at things in a completely different way. Um, That's not to say that he's outside of it, right? As he says, there are some things on whose side I am altogether not on, right? Um, His antipathy to orcs and all that they stand for is... um, you know, does not vary, is not in question, you know, there, there's no question at the end of the day of his tree beard a good guy or a bad guy. Um, but he reveals that, you know, when you're talking about sides, you're not really getting who I am, what I do, and what my point of view is. That sense of Treebeard's perspective is, to me, one of the things that I see Pippin trying to get at in this description. And again, the narrator pausing what Tolkien seems to be attempting to convey, wanting us to associate with Treebeard in our initial meeting with him. We don't just get the physical description, right? We get this much more conceptual um, sense of not just what do the ants look like, but what are they like? What do they stand for? What do they What do they sort of point to? Um, uh, and uh, anyway, so... Um, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, Joe is pointing to um, um, uh, Joe is pointing to um, 
Perhaps that nature considers uh, considers. Perhaps that nature considers us represents an almost romantic sensibility. Capital R. Um, the Earth isn't simply a resource, but a creation. Um, yeah, I, you know, this is a point I made a long time ago. It's a, a, in a talk uh, that I that I gave and posted on a podcast. Gosh, many years ago, my Tolkien in the Environment talk um, uh, that I gave at the college a long time ago. And my first reflection when I was thinking about that talk was, you know, whenever people want to talk about Tree Beard and the Ents, they want to talk about Tolkien as an environmentalist. Um, and I always think Tolkien would have hated that word, environment. Um, because, Joe, exactly as you're saying, the earth isn't simply a resource, but it's a creation. It's, a, you know, the trees and the animals that surround us are not just, you know, a resource to be husbanded by us, um, but our our fellow creatures to whom we need to be related, right? Um, so the use of the word environment, as much as it's being used in a generally, you know, often, frequently, benevolent way, um, is a fundamentally insulting term um, that all of these other creatures merely serve as the environment in which human beings live, right? Um, and uh, so, but, but, so I absolutely agree with you, Joe. You, we, we are given here the sense not of... We're being invited to look at nature in a new, in a new way, by being shown nature looking back at us and the perspective from which it might look at us. If you could wake up an ancient tree, what would it say? You know, have you ever reflected on this? Have you ever been somewhere, especially, um, uh, you know, if you go to, um, you know, an old uh, town or city or something, and there will be a, a huge oak tree in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the town or you know on the corner of a street and you just sort of sometimes you know have you ever stopped and thought like man what this tree must have seen you know the kinds of stories this tree would have to tell if it could talk what would be this this tree's experience remembering back to a time before you know, humans had even built anything here, and now seeing this whole city growing up around it, and what it would, what, and, and again, this in Treebeard's eyes, we're getting that kind of perspective, right? Um, that if something that grew in the ground, asleep as you might say, or just feeling itself as something between root tip and leaf tip, uh, between deep earth and sky, had suddenly waked up and was considering you with the same slow care that it had given to its inside affairs, um, this awareness, um, something between deep earth and sky. Um, that's another thing, of course, that Treebeard does. Um, he is a bridge. Somebody used that word. I'm getting that from somebody, and I don't remember whom. Um, but he is a bridge. He is a bridge between deep earth and sky. Um, he is not... He's just a tree, kind of, right? Um, uh, but trees are not lesser creatures. In some sense, they're greater creatures than we are. We are a small affair to them. Um, and uh, um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Sorry, just looking at a bunch of your comments here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, good. And I wish I had more time to talk about all of your comments, but I am officially now out of time. Um, <clears throat> which, of course, as usual, doesn't mean I'm going to stop right now. It means I'm going to hurry now. Uh, <laughs> so um, look at Treebeard's job description. That is his own job description. You know, he, 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 he gives this job description or self-portrait. We are tree herds, we old ends. Few of us are left now. Few enough of us are left now. Sheep get like shepherds, and shepherds like sheep, it is said, but slowly, and neither have long in the world. It is quicker and closer with trees and ents, and they walk down the ages together. For ents are more like elves, less interested in themselves than men are, and better at getting inside other things. And yet again, ents are more like men, more changeable than elves are, and quicker at taking the color of the outside, you might say, or better than both, for they are steadier and keep their minds on things longer. Some of my kin look just like trees now, and need something great to rouse them, and they speak only in whispers. But some of my trees are limb-lithe, and many can talk to me. Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to speak and learning their tree talk. They always wished to talk to everything the old elves did. But then the great darkness came, and they passed away over the sea, or fled into far valleys, and hid themselves, and made songs about days that would never come again. Never again. Ay, ay, there was there was all one wood once upon a, there was I'll come in again. Ay, ay, there was all one wood once upon a time from here to the mountains of Loon, and this was just the east end. Elves may make and sing songs about days that never come again. Treebeard, in a sense, still is the days that will never come again. He doesn't just remember them. Um, I mean, he does remember them, but. Uh, but he 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 is part of that world, um, and again, notice. I don't think he's criticizing the elves, um, you know, the old elves, the ancient elves, the first elves, comparatively flighty, to you know, when compared to Ents, right? Um, the great darkness came, and what do they do? Passed away over the sea, fled into far valleys, hid themselves. What did the Ents do? Stayed in their forests, doing pretty much the same thing they had always done. Um, you know, because elves are steadier, or ents are steadier than elves, and keep their minds on things longer. Um, that kind of stability is one of the things clearly associated with the ents here. Um, a couple of you have brought up Tom Bombadil. I've been avoiding it, but enough of you have brought it up that I won't avoid it anymore. But I won't I'm not going to get distracted in talking about Tom Bombadil. Um, there certainly is a similarity between Treebeard and Tom Bombadil. Um, both of them uh, are described as eldest. I think that this, that is true of both of them in different senses. Um, they're different orders of being, after all. But um, but I think also that um, the, the thing that the two of them most have in common is staying the same while everything else changes, right? Um, Tom Bombadil... Tom Bombadil has probably been wearing those same boots for tens of thousands of years. Um, uh, that's my guess, anyway. Um, both of them... Yeah, Diego, as you say, they have defined territory. They have their realms. They stay in them. Their realms don't change while things change around them and everybody else forgets them. Um, I think... I think that there hasn't been enough done 
um, I think that there's a really good article there um, comparing and contrasting Tom Bombadil and Treebeard. Um, I think that we could really kind of get at something, actually, if we really sit down with those two um, and look at them and their the relationship between them and their countries, the relationship between uh, them and the other creatures who live in their countries. Um, I think that there's, that there's, uh, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there, Kirsten, I agree. Their, their reluctance to get involved in affairs outside their realms. Um, yeah, 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 good. Um, now, Treebeard does uh, have less reluctance than Tom Bombadil, right? A Treebeard does go help. I mean, he goes to Isengard, uh, they go and they, uh, they, they ambush the orc host that's marching across Rohan. Um, later on, we find about, out about this later on, um, while everybody was down in, in Gondor fighting. Um, but, but yes, they do still have that reluctance. They have that sense of their boundaries. The big question that I want to ask, and we don't have time to answer it, um, but the big question that I wanted to ask about Treebeard is, you know, I was pointing to these two things, you know, Gandalf especially, you know, the white wizard returned from the dead, and Treebeard, as mythic characters that work in very different ways, as two very different kinds of mythic concepts. Um, in what sense is Treebeard mythic? It's, he's, it's, it's evocative, it's interesting, but in what sense is Treebeard, and in particular, the story of the Ents and the Ent Wives, mythic. If that touches something deep in, you know, the human psyche, like the story of Orpheus and Eurydice does, like, I would say, the resurrection of Gandalf from the dead does, what, what is it? What does it touch? What does it point to? Um, why is it that this chapter of this book... Um, has such a profound impact on so many readers. Why do you think? Um, what would you say about that? Well, we're out of time, so I will... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, and it sounds awful cowardly, doesn't it? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Diego, it's interesting, isn't it? Um Diego says, on the one hand, his story is archetypal to human experience, right? That is, uh, both his love and his loss, right? That sense of, of, of the, the sense both of, 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 of longing and of loss. Um, yes, I agree. But there's also, there's also a difference, too. And think about this. Um, Tolkien is interested in loss, in many circumstances, right? Um, that is, we get loss as it is, uh, you know, that, that is sort of something which has a mythic impact um, at various points in, uh, in Tolkien's stories. The, 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 you know, as I mentioned before, C.S. Lewis in an experiment in criticism points to Lothlorien as one of his other examples of, of, of you know, mythic elements of Tolkien's story. The story of Lothlorien is clearly a story of loss as well. Um, but it's different, right? The loss of Treebeard, um, and I agree with you, Diego, it comes closer to human experience. Uh, the loss that we see in Lothlorien, um, you know, the, the, the fading of this elven realm into winter and the, and, 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 and the fact that it's going to pass away, um, and that, 
um, you know, the human realms will be deprived of the beauty and the magic of that elven realm. That's a very different kind of loss than, I never said died, we lost them, right? We lost them and we can't find them again. Uh, that we get about the ant wives. There's something much more, much more personal, much closer, I think, to human experience. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Keep thinking about this. We'll talk about this more next time. I don't have, I don't have time to do justice to the ants and ant wives. Um, I would love to sit down and do a close reading of Treebeard's poems. Um, I did do that once, actually, um, uh, in one of my very first published articles, actually, um, uh, on the the Song of the Ant and of the Ant and the Ant Wives, um, that I published in Tolkien Studies, low these several years ago. Um, but um, uh, anyways, I'm not sure I'm gonna have time to go through them in detail. But we'll come. We'll start with the Ants and the Ant Wives a little bit more next time. Um, and then we will move on next, uh, the sort of the main theme of the next class, our third. Uh, I'm going to do four classes on each of book three and book four. Um, so our third out of four classes on book three, we're going to be focusing on the Rohirrim, um, the King of the Golden Hall, the Battle of Helm's Deep, and all that stuff. Um, so we'll definitely be thinking about uh, Rohan, and we'll, you know, we'll see what... Uh, I would love to hear what topics you guys would like to talk about there. Um, but we, I will come back again a little bit uh, to Treebeard and the Ants and the Antwives here at the beginning uh, next time. There's at least one of his poems I do want to talk about. Um, so uh, I'll start with that next time. Keep thinking about it. I, I, I want to hear more about what you guys think about the myth of the Ants and the Antwives. So uh, thanks very much for joining me. I, I, and I have to go, but we will, uh, we'll, can, we'll carry on next time. Uh, with class number three on the two towers. Thanks for joining me, everybody, and I'll have the recordings up. Oh, and by the way, I've gotten messages from several of you. I, I guess the the audio recording from last time is kind of screwed up. I'll try to I'll, I'll, I'll try to fix that. The uploading must have gotten a bit wonky uh, last time, so I'll try to get that then, and I'll be posting the recording of this um, very soon, uh, hopefully within the next twenty four hours. So, thanks very much for joining us, everybody, and I will see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>